0: you're listening to the converging paths podcast brought to you by asia house and the barakat trust with the support of the altagir trust and the aga khan trust for culture hello this is your host juan De Lara. i hope that all of you are having a well-deserved summer break as every month we're bringing you some exciting content to accompany you during this time and today we have a very exciting theme as we have here with us alan george Alan is the IMP Professor of Islamic Art and Architecture at Oxford University. Alan has just published a new book titled The Majak Mosque of Damascus: Art, Faith and Empire in Early Islam. This has been published by our friends from Jinko. Alan is here to tell us more about his book and to unveil the marvelous history that hides behind its construction at a time in history was extremely tumultuous, but extremely fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alan. I think my first question for you, which I think will be useful for the audience that's not familiar with this building, is what is the mosque of Damascus? And why is it an important monument for art history?
1: Thank you, Juan, uh, and uh, thank you for having me on your, on your series. Um, The the mosque of Damascus is um, a monument which was founded uh, at the very end of the 1st century of Islam, in the early 8th century. Um, And so it's important um, on several counts. First, because it's the earliest major mosque that's still standing in something close to its original state. Um, And so, it's a very important uh, historical uh, document, if you like, about early Islam. And um, it also has uh, uh, very well preserved wall mosaics from this period, which are rare. And it's important because um, this has been a major cultic site since high antiquity at least since the 9th century BC. And when you look at the mosque and the history of the site, you find traces not just of the Umayyad period when it was built, but also of previous periods like the Roman period especially and of every subsequent period in the history of Damascus. So it contains in a way the whole history of this city.
0: Thank you, Lan. And I guess the topic takes us directly to your book, and I wanted to know, why this book now?
1: Up until now, we had um, some very good studies um, on the mosque of Damascus, especially in the last uh, 60 years, on the mosaics and attempts to interpret these mosaics, which have vast landscapes with trees and buildings and rivers. Uh, but what I found was missing was a simple historical narrative of the reason why this extraordinary monument was founded. Um, and um, I also found that there was um, more historical evidence than, than you would expect for this period, uh, 13 centuries ago. So we have uh, very important literary evidence in the form of poems. Uh, We have administrative papyri uh, that date from the period and are related to it. And we have very good medieval Syrian Arabic sources that contain a lot of information about it. So it's a monument about which we have a wealth of information, which is a bit difficult to digest because it's uh, It's done for different purposes, uh, but it's there. And that's allowed me to reconstruct the historical sequence of events that led to uh, the existence of this building.
0: And in terms of the building, it would be useful for the audience to understand why, when, and by whom was it constructed. Why was a mosque decided to be built at the end of the 8th century in this city, in Damascus?
1: That's a very good question. So uh, the prophet uh, Muhammad dies in 632 and this is a period of expansion for uh, Muslim armies and they reach Damascus in the 630s and we know that they build a first mosque there, which is probably a very simple building, but this site most of all was the site of a Roman temple of Jupiter, one of these gigantic temples that the Romans built, like uh, the temple of Baalbak in Lebanon, not very far from Damascus, or the temple of Bel in Palmyra. And then it becomes a Christian site in the fourth century. And so um, the first mosque of Damascus in the seventh century stands next to a church, um, and this church may have been a conversion of the Roman temple. And at first, this isn't a problem because most uh, Muslim cities, especially in greater Syria, tend to have this combination of a mosque and a church at, at the heart of the urban fabric. What makes Damascus different uh, eventually is the fact that it becomes the capital of the Muslim empire in the 660s, and so all of a sudden we have this situation whereby the caliphs, the rulers of this empire, which becomes the largest that the world has ever seen during those years, have their main palace uh, abutting a site of which uh, the key building is the church. And of course, they're proclaiming this new form of monotheism, Islam, at the time. And this becomes more and more of a political problem for them in the seventh century. So we hear from the sources that two caliphs called Muawiyah and Abdul Malik try to buy the church from the Christians of Damascus, but they refuse. And um, in 705, we have a young caliph who's called Al-Walid, who's the son of the previous one, um, who really cuts the Gordian knot, or maybe does something reckless by, uh, in the perspective of his contemporaries, which is to take the church by force, and then he gives some compensation to the Christians, and this really runs against the social order of early Islam. It's a very bold and provocative gesture, uh, which sends ripples uh, beyond Damascus uh, at the time. Uh, But it allows him to reclaim this site entirely for Muslims. And um, ultimately, he's been very successful.
0: So it seems to me that this character you were talking about, Al-Walid, appears in a time that was quite turbulent in the Middle East. Nonetheless, he appears as a powerful leader, but young. What can you tell us about his personality and his way to deal with the new religion and the community?
1: So it, it's very hard to pin down personalities um, at such a remove of you know, centuries and centuries, but we get the sense that Al-Walid is impulsive. He's um, a young leader. Um, who had been prepared to become caliph by his father, but he wasn't next in line until a few weeks uh, uh, before he became caliph. And so all of a sudden, here he is, he's the caliph of the largest empire in the world. Um, And uh, he makes this very bold move. Um, The sources tell us they are late sources and we don't know if, if it's true or not. Just to give you a, a picture that he was tall, um, he had a brown uh, complexion, he had suffered uh, from smallpox and he had a few traces of it on his body, um, and that he had a beard with just a little bit of uh, grey hair on it and all the rest of his uh, hair was, was black uh, some sources say that he was ugly and that he used to strut. God only knows. Um, and so, but we have th- this ruler who uh, is coming into a context which is less turbulent than it's been in previous decades. Why? Because uh, there was a civil war between Muslims. There were several, actually, but there was a very recent one which was um, won by his father. And so uh, his most dangerous internal opponents uh, were killed. And uh, there was a conflict with Byzantium and um, the Omeyads had been forced to pay a tribute, a huge tribute to Byzantium on a yearly basis until a few years before uh, these events Happened. So Al-Walid arrives uh, on the scene in an empire that's managed to remove these threats um, and that's also consolidated its rule which means uh, they've got more taxation which is taken regularly from the population in particular and they really tighten their grip on the whole state apparatus and the population and The mosque of Damascus is in one way the embodiment of all of these changes and of this consolidated dynasty and it's also the period in which um, Muslim rulers begin to assert Islam as a religious dogma much more uh, publicly and clearly than before. There was a very strong policy of um, of consensus building with Christians in previous decades, when the empire was uh, still expanding. And now there's both more um, religious um, uh, dogma uh, at the forefront. Uh, wait, I'll, I'll say that again. <laughs> It's nice. I shouldn't do live interviews, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Nice um, you. Go, go ahead.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so uh, Al-Walid now has control over taxation, over his territories and his governors much more strongly than any um, Muslim ruler before him in previous decades. And the mosque of Damascus becomes an embodiment of all these trends. And it's interesting to note that it's not the only mosque that he builds. During the decade of his reign, he also builds at least seven other major mosques, um, none of which survives. There are maybe a few fragments from the Umayyad period here and there. But so, he's really using mosque architecture as a way to project um, dynastic power and religious authority. And you have to remember that the early caliphs of Islam are religious and political leaders at the same time. There's no division there. So it's been called a form of caesar or papism in that sense. He's, he's both caesar and the Pope, if we want to translate. And this is also what this mosque and his other mosques are, are telling the population, which is predominantly Christian at the time.
0: So you have mentioned before that during this period, and because of the fury to this leader, there was a general consensus to consolidate different powers. But this monument has the characteristic also that at different points in time, it was a pagan temple, a church, and a mosque. And I wonder if you consider this building as an archive that helps us to narrate the interactions at the time between pagans, Christians, and Muslims.
1: Absolutely, I, I think you're right about that. Um, I use the concept of the palimpsest to explain this. Uh, the palimpsest is a literary concept from the ni- that's existed since the 19th century. The palimpsest is a manuscript that's been erased Um, But uh, so you lose the text that it was conveying, but actually it's still latent and you can bring it back. And over time, you end up with an artifact which contains many different successive layers, some of which are more erased than others, some of which are preserved in memory and discourse as well. And I think uh, the mosque of Damascus, any architecture is palimpsestic really, because the moment you start uh, repairing or you have any damage and any change to the building, you have new layers uh, that are accruing in your building. But this is particularly striking at the Mosque of Damascus, where the oldest preserved artifact is a stone relief from the 9th century BC, showing a sphinx, where the walls of the mosque, are the walls of the Roman temple, and all of the columns on which it was built were Roman. And you have traces of every uh, subsequent layer that's existed there. And as you were saying, we have traces of how pagans interacted with Christians, especially in the fourth century, when there was, conflictual relation between the two faiths and um, uh, oppression of uh, pagan cults uh, by the newly um, uh, arisen Christian empire. Then we have traces of what happens between Muslims and Christians in the early eighth century. And it continues in every later period. Another illustration of that is the fact that it it preserved for centuries a cache of manuscripts, um, including hundreds of thousands of early Quranic folios, but also uh, many Christian fragments um, in different languages, so Greek, Latin, but also Syriac, uh, which is a form of Aramaic, um, uh, Georgian, Uh, even uh, uh, Middle French, because this continued into later periods as well. So In many ways, this site is an extraordinary concentrate of the history of this whole region.
0: That is fascinating. Um, I wonder if while you were doing research on these topics and on the mosque, uh, did you come up with any anecdote that is surprising, funny or witty surrounding the building and its construction?
1: Mm. Right. When you ask me this, uh, two images come to mind. They're very vivid scenes. They're not necessarily funny, actually, but they're quite striking. One of them is is a story preserved in Syrian sources about Al-Walid's takeover of the church. And the sources tell us that uh, he orders um, his... um, his agents in the administration to seize the church from Christians who protest, they absolutely don't want that. And uh, this comes to a standstill when um, the Christians say that anyone who um, uh, who breaks the church uh, with his tools is going to be damned, the church has sacred powers. So Al-Walid himself in the stories, comes into the mosque precinct at this point and he goes into a tower um, within the mosque and he finds there a monk, an ascetic, who was refusing to come down. He grabs him by the neck and drives him down the stairs and then throws him out um, of the church and mosque precinct. Um, And then he says, you're afraid. So I'm going to show you how this is done. And he takes a pickaxe and he's the one who begins to destroy the church himself. And it's a very good story. It's uh, it just uh, shows you in a very uh, dramatic narrative form, this change of ownership of the site. And um, the the role that Al-Walid plays in that. Um, And it's tempting for us as historians to regard it as just this, as a narrative, but interestingly we have poems, uh, court poems written for Al-Walid that survive and that seem to suggest uh, that he did get directly involved in that destruction. Uh, So maybe there is Uh, a kernel of historical fact, uh, which has been uh, embellished, if you like, with this story. And then if I jump ahead a few centuries into the 15th century, so we're under the Mamluk dynasty, which rules from Egypt, uh, there's one of the major fires uh, at that point that uh, destroys the mosque, And we have very striking eyewitness accounts of of this fire in uh, 1479 by someone called Ibn al-Himsi. And he he, he just tells us how people were devastated at the site and tried to save what could be saved amongst the precious objects, such as carpets, uh, for instance, that uh, had uh, been accumulated within this space Um, over the years and how they all wept uh, when the fire stopped and they saw uh, what was left and they were weeping during congregational prayer and he also tells us interestingly that uh, Christians uh, were also affected just like the Muslims um, by what they saw at that point and we have some evidence of Christians still participating sometimes in repairs as craftsmen, even then.
0: It's wonderful to hear more about these finds and these stories that seem to support history, that somehow form part of the fantastic history related to famous personalities like Al-Walid. One thing to consider about buildings is that they are a testament of moments in history particularly in human development. What do you think we can learn from the mosque in Damascus? Or what can we learn from a figure like Al-Walid?
1: That's an interesting question. We can learn first about the genesis of Islamic art, because this is the period in which they're really beginning to sponsor art on a monumental scale. It starts in the 690s, and we're still in the very early stages um, at that time, 700s. And we have um, a new architecture that's built as a synthesis of what existed before, which is mosque architecture, which had provided a template of the mosque and its general shape and articulation. And the means provided by Christian church architecture. Because if you're standing in the early 8th century and you want to build the finest building of the day, uh, you have to use Christian craftsmen. Um, They're just the best that you can use. And so this is why you find in the mosque marble paneling with veined marble, what we call quartered marble, uh, which is a bit like waves that you also find uh, in early churches. We have wall mosaics, which were common in churches in late antiquity, but each of these elements and the columns and the arches on which churches were built, each element has been reworked it's as if um, you were using the same grammar, but you create a new syntax, you rearrange the elements. And Al-Walid is bringing um, uh, mosque patronage to a new level. And I think this leaves a major imprint, just the fact that he spends so much on a major mosque and then in later decades, people can see the results, can see the lasting impact that it has on collective minds and memories. Uh, And I think it provides an important impetus in the history of the mosque. Um, And so, if you like, this mosque is um, a witness of this Muslim Christian society, which also has uh, a Jewish minority, um, that is the crucible of early Islam, especially in Syria and Egypt. You're almost touching it, it's, it's there. May, for me there's something which is even more fascinating than this, which is that by um, reading poems composed for Al-Walid and by studying the way that they compose their mosaics as well, these very large mosaic panels, you end up with a sense of the aesthetics which guided the Omeyads, unstated um, aesthetic values about how you create beauty. And these values are Fundamentally premised on ambiguity, on polysemy. And in that sense, they resemble the world of late antiquity in the Christian sphere. And they kind of disturb our modern expectations about something more one dimensional with a clear meaning. What I mean by that is that artistic achievement is measured in literature, but also in the visual arts, by the extent to which it can stir emotion um, in the beholder, but also the extent to which you can't pin it down. So every time you're going to see it, or every time you're going to hear a poem, It's going to be a new experience. You're going to have a new understanding, maybe a new emotional reaction as well to what you see. And these were fundamental values. They're the aesthetic values, which underpin the reception of the Quran in early and classical Islam as an open text, which has an infinite wealth an infinite number of meanings, and you can come back to it every day, and it's going to be something fresh. And this is exactly what um, travelers say and writers say about their experience of the ornament of the Great Mosque of Damascus, as well. So, all of this work together in concert. And you have to imagine that the the Quran was recited uh, day and night within the walls of this mosque as well. So it was a very powerful aesthetic experience with sound that was added to sight. And they probably burned incense and fragrances and applied fragrances as well. So it's... It's really meant to call upon all of the senses to create a single uh, unified reaction. But it's a reaction which is never the same as when.
0: Thank you so much, Alan. It has been a wonderful way to finalize the podcast with a very evocative image of the mosque. We very often tend to forget the sensorial aspects of the buildings. And I think through this podcast you can get more information on not only the aesthetics and how it looked like, but also what it felt to be part of it. Really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. And I hope that hopefully at some point in the future, you're able to come back to London and join us for an in-life session or event here at Asia House.
1: Thank you very much. And it will be my, my pleasure to have another discussion. Thank you, Juan.